And you didn't need to look far this week uh, to see the reality of that, that evil actually exists. This isn't theoretical. We aren't playing games here at church. It's not five tips to a better you. There's a real spiritual battle happening. Um, 21 Egyptian Christians were, were kidnapped, if you didn't see in the news. And they were beheaded um, by an extremist group called ISIS. And um, this group released the video. And what's even more chilling about the video is how it is such a clear attack on Christianity. The, the name of the video was A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. And so I thought it'd be good for us to take a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. It's so easy to be in Pasadena and uh, go through these tough texts and to think, yeah, we believe in that, but then you see this reality in front of us. And so I'd like to go before the Lord and, and pray and pray for our time together as well. So won't you join me? Father in heaven, we affirm, Lord, that you are Lord. You are the great sovereign. There is nothing that transpires on this earth that doesn't go across your desk first. And so we take a great comfort in that. But we are shocked when we encounter such flagrant evil and it's tragic but in one sense it the benefit is it wakes us up to reality and so lord i ask um that as a church as we pray that our brothers and sisters around the world would receive a spiritual blessing through your holy Spirit. lord we pray for those families over in egypt right now that are mourning the loss of their loved ones, dads that won't come home anymore, and husbands who won't be there to provide. But Lord, we know that you are the great provider. You are the good father. And so we ask that you would go now and that you would be near those families, near all of our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And Lord, I pray for your word this morning that it would go forth in power. I'm totally dependent upon you to do anything helpful, Lord. Even as our text talks about not peddling your word and being sincere, Lord, I want so bad to be sincere. Um, So help me do that. Keep me from error. Keep me from being unhelpful. But Lord, I pray that your truth would go forth, that Christ would be exalted, and that we would find great freedom and great conviction for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. If you're new, we're going through 2 Corinthians for the entire scope of this year. So welcome. We're still near the beginning, so you can jump right in with us. But before we get into the meat of the text today, we have to do a bit of context so we understand what's going on with some of the names uh, in the verses at the beginning. So you may have experienced this before, where you needed to write some, a, a hard word to somebody that you cared about deeply. And you wanted so badly for this word to, to, to bring reconciliation. And it was almost like diffusing a bomb because you wanted to be so careful. Every word was weighed so carefully so that it could possibly rec- be received in the spirit that you wanted it. 
but also like diffusing a bomb. You knew at any moment, one false move, even though you're being intentional, could explode the whole thing. And that's kind of what we see happening here. So we're studying 2 Corinthians, but as we've mentioned before, there was another letter that Paul wrote in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's uh, typically referred to as the severe letter. And Paul references it just a couple weeks ago. He said in chapter 2, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I wrote to you, that is this other letter, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And Paul had decided not to, de- to deliver this message personally because he was scared that he would be too severe with them and he didn't want to fracture this fragile relationship. So he sent his buddy Titus as a sort of emissary on his behalf to deliver the letter. And that's where our text picks up today. So he sent Titus. He was supposed to rendezvous with Titus in Troas to get word on how things went down. And he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And this brings us to our first of three points today. Number one, our frailty can't unravel God's sovereignty. This shows us our frailty can't unravel God's sovereignty. If you've learned anything so far in 2 Corinthians, I hope you've found a great freedom in realizing as Christians, we can be authentic people. We don't have to have a plastic veneer, act like everything is always going well. That's not the case at all. Paul is so open about his struggles. He's so real about the stuff that's going on with them. And there's a massive admission right here at the very beginning, which would be easy to pass over. But look at this. He says, when he went to Troas, a door was opened for him by the Lord. So clearly this was where he was supposed to be going. This was God's will for Paul's life in that moment. But he couldn't stay there because his friend didn't show up and he needed so badly the encouragement of Titus. He needed to know how things went down in Corinth. And so even though a door was open in the Lord, Paul said, my spirit wasn't at rest. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. I had to find Titus. And this is so significant because one of my biggest struggles, especially throughout my 20s, and I know I'm not alone in this generation, is trying to discern God's will for our lives, right? What is God's will for my life? I know many of you have just graduated college and you're in that season where you're trying to discern uh, what is God's will for this next season? Do I immediately jump into pursuing my passion or do I find a job on the side that helps me pay the bills while I work on my portfolio? What's God's will for my life? Um, I used to kind of see it like the program, let's make a deal. So I, I had one thing here that I knew what it would be, but there's three other doors that I could choose from but I better choose the right one because only one is God's will for my life. And if I choose wrong, well, then I'll be headed down a trajectory for the rest of my life outside of God's will. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but that's how I used to see it. And it's terrifying. Why won't God just tell me which door to pick? That doesn't seem very nice. Well, this should be encouraging because it was clear that God's will for Paul's life was to go to Troas, but he couldn't because he was not at rest in his soul. He felt frail. And so he went there, and he found Titus, 
And we'll get to that word in a second because Paul kind of leaves us hanging here. He doesn't tell us how it actually went down with this meaning, but he does tell us in Philippians. He weaves these two things together with discerning God's will for our lives with also having wisdom and counsel along the way. He says this in Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, and then catch this, with all knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent. I am sure that Christ will complete the work that he started in you, but grow in knowledge and in discernment, as Jared was saying. That's one of the main reasons we do community groups, because we need people in our lives who know us, who can pray for us, who can help us discern these difficult decisions. But all the while, we realize that God is sovereign over our lives and is guiding us the entire way. Even the existence of Prison Church is an example of this. I know Chuck has shared with many of you about a couple years ago when he came out here, his intention was not to plant a church, but through a series of very painful events, uh, Prism Church was, was planted. And then even me being here, trying to discern that call, and I had another job offer last year from a church that doesn't exist anymore called Mars Hill. And it's, it's crazy the fact that I'm here with Chuck and we're here this morning. This is a case study of God being sovereign over our frailty and things looking very different than we would have thought and for moments feeling like we're outside of God's will. And we see this happening right here in the text today. So how did the meeting with Titus uh, go? Well, if we jump um, up to uh, chapter 7, Paul actually finally tells us, so spoiler alert here, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, feel this tension in Paul's soul. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So Titus came and the news was good news. The Corinthians had repented. The relationship was still intact. And Pastor Paul was so pleased because he loved this church so much. He had been there for 18 months incubating this new church. And the news is good. And he felt so comforted. So don't miss this, friends. Troas, the Lord had opened a door for him. And Paul took leave of it because his soul was in anguish. And when he got to Macedonia, who was waiting to comfort him? Sure, Titus was one of the people waiting to comfort him. And the church in Corinth had comforted him by the news. But he even says, God, who comforts the downcast, was there to comfort me. Friends, we aren't ever outside of God's sovereignty. The Lord opened a door for him. He took leave of it, and God was waiting to comfort him when he got to Macedonia. So be encouraged. No matter where you're at this morning, God's not rolling dice with your life. He is with you the entire way. Yes, we can avoid some painful situations by wisdom and discernment by being in community, but the entire time the Lord Jesus is right by our side, upholding him with his strong right hand. 
That is such an encouragement to me this morning. Before we move on to the next point, though, I, I want to graft in the first part of verse 14, which says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So what does this have to do with God's frailty? This sounds like the perfect coffee cup verse for those who would say that the Christian life is one of continual victory, right? That if you just have enough faith, then you will just triumph in Christ all the days of your life. And even most of your Bibles, this section is called triumph in Christ. Well, once again, our English translations kind of struggle and fail us here a bit because the picture that Paul is trying to convey is actually not so much that at all. Yes, ultimately, we triumph in Christ. But what Paul employs here with the phrase triumphal procession, he is actually referring to this type of victory celebration that would happen in Rome after a general or a conqueror had defeated his foes and was bringing his captives back to Rome. And so the triumphal procession is this general at the front with his captives following suit behind him, going towards their execution, and he would parade them through the city of Rome. The only other time Paul ever uses this language is in Colossians, where he says, God disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's a very strange thing that Paul is saying here. And what's even more peculiar, and this wouldn't have been lost on the Corinthians, is the fact that he paints this picture, but he says, I always thank God who leads me in this triumphal procession. Because Paul had no delusion that his call was going to be one of of comfort and victory as the world sees it. He knew exactly what he had signed up for, not even been signed up for, what he had been arrested by God to do on the Damascus Road. He makes this explicit in two chapters. He says, uh, chapter 4, I always carry in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So Paul knew that not only was his frailty not going to unravel God's sovereignty, But God is often pleased to use our weaknesses for his glory. He leads us in this triumphal procession. And the reason Paul could give thanks for this is because of two words there, namely that it was in Christ that he was being led in this. Because this feels upside down. This doesn't feel triumphant. Well, this was never more clearly seen than in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the great Lord of creation. He is the great creator, but he was also a suffering servant. He also came in humility, and he also said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you better be the servant of all. So God means to turn our conception and triumph on his head. So our frailty cannot unravel God's sovereignty, which is such great news And secondly, we learn that our fragrance can bring salvation. Verse 14, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life Who is sufficient for these things? So we see a picture here. This picture will surely elicit different responses. 
So if you like going to the mall and you like being smashed with a tsunami of smells, this will make you happy. But if you're like me and you're prone to migraines, this is the fragrance of death. (laughs) And can I get a witness, right? It's amazing, though, um, how strong a fragrance can be, a, a smell. It can elicit such memories. I remember my 10th grade girlfriend wore a Pleasures, this perfume. And to this day, when I smell Pleasures, I'm immediately transported back to Brandon, Florida in driver's ed, just like that. It's incredible how strong. Even yesterday, I kid you not, after I wrote my sermon, I went to, I think, the dollar store to get water for after church or whatever today. And somebody had Pleasures on, and, and, and there it was. So... <laughs> So it's not an accident that Paul uses this metaphor. Um, Smells are so closely tied in our brains to the part that that processes memories that out of all of our senses, smells can actually elicit the strongest emotional responses. So Paul knows what he's doing when he's using this metaphor, but he's talking more than just about the response that the smell elicits. There are at least two other things going on here. One, he's still picking up on the theme of this triumphal procession because part of the procession would be people who were waving incense along the way. So Paul is also saying, for those of us who are preaching Christ, we are spreading this fragrance of Christ everywhere through this triumphal procession. However, he also says right after that a very interesting thing. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. So what's going on there? What could that mean? How are we the aroma of Christ to God? Well, Paul is picking up on a theme from the Old Testament. In Leviticus, it tells us that the sacrifices made to God for the forgiveness of sin, for the atonement of sin, was a sweet smell, a sweet aroma to God. So Paul is essentially saying here, because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, We are now the sweetest possible smell in the nostrils of God that could be fathomed. We are the aroma of Christ to God because of his perfect sacrifice for the remission of sinners for all who come to him through faith. So no matter what you have done, no matter what garbage you drag in this morning, no matter what shame you feel, you could not smell better to God. God could not be more delighted in you. We need to know this, friends, because our hearts often condemn us. Even in 1 John, he says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. You are the aroma of Christ to God. In Revelation 19, we get this unbelievable picture. So Revelation, if you're not familiar with the book, it's kind of as if we're standing at the threshold of eternity in much of the book. And we're getting glimpses of how the end times will play out. And then as the beginning of uh, eternity starts to unfold. And in Revelation 19, we get what's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's this picture of a wedding party where we have Jesus Christ. And then we have his church, which the Bible calls his bride. And it tells us that it was granted to us to wear the finest linens, clean and white. As the bride of Christ, because of what he's done for us, we get to wear totally clean, totally white linen. So whatever you come in this morning with, Jesus Christ has taken care of it. You are now the aroma of Christ to God, the sweetest smell he could ever think of. And of course you are, right? I mean, it's his son, his precious son. 
What could smell better to God than Christ? But Paul goes on and says, we are more than the, uh, an aroma to God. We are also the fragrance of Christ to every single person we encounter. You could be the means by which someone comes to salvation. That's amazing. Your life has infinite importance, not just because you are a soul that will go on for eternity, but because you bump up against other people every day and you can have an eternal impact on their lives. As Paul says, from some, a fragrance from life to life and from some, the fragrance of death to death. Every person you meet will be eternally existence either in the presence of Christ or away from the presence of Christ. And God has commissioned us to be the fragrance of Christ to them. How amazing is that? Do we take each other seriously enough? Many of you know that I, I, I love C.S. Lewis, um, and I've learned a lot from that man. And one thing that I've learned from him that, practically speaking, has changed my life the most is this very thing. He has taught me that we must take each other very seriously. He makes this point explicitly in The Weight of Glory near the end, an essay that he wrote. It would be the best 20 minutes of your life spent if you read that this week. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. By that, he just means elevated beings. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet, now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their lives are to us as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This hit me like a splash of cold water. Every cashier who rings you out, every server, they're not a mere mortal. They are Immortal, they are eternal beings, and we have been called by God to spread the fragrance of Christ to everybody whom we come into contact with. And this is something that I've been convicted of more and more as of late, being bolder in my gospel witness, because oftentimes I feel like if I just, if people find out that I'm a Christian, then I've done my job, right? Like that, that's good enough. They know I'm a Christian, and it's even bonus points if they find out that I'm in ministry. So as long as they know that I'm a Christian, then, then we're good to go as far as that relationship is concerned. I've, I've shared the gospel with them because they know I'm a Christian. The only problem is the Great Commission wasn't go into the world and let everybody know that you're a disciple, but go into the world and make disciples. And we have to ask ourselves, friends, are, are we actually in our lives seeking to do that? And I know this looks different in every situation. And I know it takes time to cultivate relationships and your friendships and your families. But I realized in my life, I was very rarely actually pushing Christ in front of somebody in a way that they could actually make a decision about him. 
like really calling them to trust in Christ. I've made friends with a, a guy who oversees my complex, this sweet guy. His name is Vic, and um, every time he comes over, he's one of those guys where if you give him an ear, he's glad to fill it. He loves to, he loves to talk. He's probably in his mid-70s, and he often, after watering the plants, will come over to my garage to see if I have any new woodworking proce- uh, projects going on. And every time we talk, he always makes these grandiose statements about how he's know the end is near, and he's ready to be done with life, and all these kind of morbid things. He always says them, and I'm... Um, for the past couple of months, I've, I've, I've always tried to, you know, kind of gauge his temperature spiritually. I always ask him, Vic, have you, have you trusted in Jesus, Vic? Like, there, there's comfort there, and he'll take care of you, and, and there can be an assurance of what you're talking about and these type of things. And, and he always kind of plays it off a bit, like, yeah, well, I sure hope so. I'm trying to get right with the man upstairs because I know I'm about to be out of here. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, I hear you. And he, he even tells me that sometimes he falls asleep um, grasping his rosary. And so a couple weeks ago, Vic came over again, and, and we were talking. He had actually just been at a funeral that, um, that weekend, and so he was feeling especially heavy. And there was a Holy Spirit moment in me where I'm like, I have to actually, I can't let Vic off the hook this time. Like, I have to get a response from him. So I said, Vic, have you trusted in Jesus? He says, well, you know, I sure hope so, because no, Vic, have you actually trusted in Jesus? Do you know that he's forgiven your sins, Vic, that he is Lord? He said, well, do you think I should do that? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you should probably do that, Vic. Um, he says, you think I need to say it out loud? I was like, yeah, man, I think that would be good if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so uh, he's like, well, maybe you could help me with that. And I'm like, it'd be my favorite thing in the world to do. So I uh, put my arm around him and slid him through a prayer the best that I knew how, and, and he repeated after me. It was this really sweet moment. And of course, I, don't, I can't see into Vic's soul. I don't know if that was actually a moment in his life or not, but I knew in that moment I couldn't let this time pass without actually calling him to give a response. I needed to know. So ultimately, friends, our job is not to save anyone, luckily, because we couldn't if we tried. That's why Paul rightly says at the end of this text here, who is sufficient for these things? The answer, no one is sufficient for these things. But our sufficiency comes totally on the merits of Jesus Christ. He has made us righteous. He has given us his Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens faith. And so we are called to be the aroma of Christ. But we must do that. So we have seen so far in the text that our frailty can't unravel God's sovereignty and that God uses our fragrance to bring about salvation in others, which is amazing. And finally, we see number three, that it is when we are faithful to the word that we speak for Christ. Only when we are faithful to the word, do we speak for Christ. Verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul now turns his sights once again to those in the church or in the city who were what he calls peddlers of God's word. These were people who were distorting the gospel or watering down the gospel in order to gain financially or to gain a following. Luckily, that doesn't happen at all in our day anymore, so we're good on that, right? I hope you do realize that not everyone who claims to be a Christian teacher is a Christian teacher. Not, not everyone who claims to speak for Christ is actually speaking for Christ. 
It's only when we speak the word of God that we are speaking authoritatively on behalf of Christ. And in our times, like never before, the authority of scripture is, is under attack. Um, even this week, you may have seen one of the top trending stories on Facebook was an interview that Oprah had with a former Christian pastor. And she was talking about one of the, the hot button issues in our time, and, and that's neither here nor there for our discussion this morning. But what I want to hone in is on the response that he gave. She was asking him, when's the church going to get with culture on this? And he said this, I think culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. The church will be more irrelevant when it keeps quoting the Bible as their defense about these things. The arrogance of this is, is kind of shocking. Um, but in one way, it's actually kind of helpful when it's this blatant because there isn't much middle ground here. You either relegate scripture to just letters that you're foolish to quote authoritatively or, or you stick on the side of the Bible. There isn't much middle ground here. But oftentimes, our confidence in scripture can be undercut in much more subtle ways. Oftentimes, it comes through seemingly innocuous questions. The only problem is the question never intended on being answered by the person who presented it. So you hear things like, well, who can really know what Jesus was saying there? Or do you really think Jesus believed that he was the only way to God? Yeah, he actually said it over and over again. Oh, you didn't want to talk about it, actually? Okay, I see. Um, a thousand things like this. Well, how do we even know that the New Testament's reliable? I would love to talk about that with you. Oh, I see you didn't want to actually talk about it. You just wanted to put the question out to start to have a germ of doubt in our minds. I see. Um, now, what I'm not saying here this morning is if you struggle with comprehending scripture or understanding the authority, I am not saying, hear me on this, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask questions. We absolutely should ask questions. Christianity has never been anti-intellectual. In fact, it's Christians who have pushed the sciences and maths and all of these things. They were the great pillars of thought in their day. It's not about not asking questions. It's about being serious with our questions. We are men and women of sincerity. We've been commissioned by God, and so we wrestle with things, but not in a disingenuous way, which is so prevalent now. It's interesting, though, when you think about it. The reality is the fall of humanity started with a disingenuous question, didn't it? Remember in Genesis 3? It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and here it is, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A disingenuous question. And we also see that Eve also had a problem because she didn't know God's word. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He only said you couldn't eat of it. That was his first tactic, and it hasn't changed since. Make no mistake, friends. The enemy always seeks to destroy our confidence in God's word. The enemy always seeks to destroy your confidence in God's word. And another reason why statements like this 
by Christian pastors in America are so offensive um, is because the scores of our brothers and sisters around the world right now who are risking their lives to get Bibles into places that have never had the Bible before. And so we can sit here in Los Angeles and say, really, you're going to quote from letters from 2,000 years ago? Meanwhile, there are martyrs all over the world for Christianity and for getting Bibles into these places. Uh, The 21 Egyptian Christians who lost their lives this week sure weren't looking to be relevant, however culture defines that. They weren't peddlers of God's word. They were men of sincerity, and it cost them their lives. This week I was reading an article of some of the family's responses uh, to the deaths of their loved ones and talking about their life some. And, and one story I read was a guy named Yosef. He was 24, and, and he lost his life last week. Um, and his mother was talking about him, and she said how she begged him not to go to Libya. He went to Libya from Egypt to try to find work. He couldn't find work in Egypt. And she begged him to not go, and, and his response was, I have one God. He's the same here and there. And then they were interviewing his brother. His brother's name was Shinada. And his brother said how proud he was of Yosef. And then he said this, he lived according to the book. He lived according to the book. I'm so proud of him. He lived according to the book until the end. I hope that's what somebody says at my funeral. If the Lord keeps me faithful till then, he lived according to the book. And as we know, church, all the authors, most of them, at least in the New Testament, who wrote them, lost their lives for writing these letters. They were men of sincerity. They weren't trying to cave to culture or be relevant, however culture defines that. We even know that Jesus himself said that Satan is the prince of the air. Why in the world would we defer to culture then? We're men and women of sincerity. And of course, Jesus Christ himself lost his life because he wouldn't cave to culture. And it's gained us our freedom. Uh, a few months back, I went to West Virginia to, to shoot a wedding, and I was flying back, and I was sitting next to this gal in the airplane, and we were talking to each other, getting to know each other a bit, and we um, were asking what each other does, and, and I told her I was in ministry, and, and she was, I don't, it was pretty clear she probably wasn't a believer, and, and um, at some point she said, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, what makes you think that you're in a place of authority to give spiritual counsel to people? It's a great, a great question. Why do you think that you could be in that place in people's lives? And, uh, and I thought about it, and I, I said to her, well, the only reason that I think I ha- can be in any authority is because I'm under authority. All I want to do is just continually point to the Bible, point to God's word. Now, the moment I have some novel idea that I start pitching and I start getting my own gathering, that's the moment you should be nervous. But the only reason I think I have any authority is because I am wholly under authority. And the moment I'm under authority, not under authority anymore, then is the moment you need to run for the hills. So this is not just a collection of letters from thousands of years ago. This is the eternal and sovereign Lord of history, revealing his plan and history of redemption to rescue rebellious sinners to bring salvation and to bring us back home into relationship with us. We should cherish the word of God, friends. It is absolutely amazing that we have this book and we can ask questions and we can wrestle. But at the end of this day, do you realize how incredible it is that the creator has communicated to us in his word? 
If you have an English Bible, which I presume most of you do, you may not know the story on, on, on how we actually got our English translation. Um, up until the 16th century, an English translation of the Bible didn't exist, and it, it was actually illegal to translate any part of the scriptures into English. Can you believe that? It was illegal to translate it into English. Well, there's a man named William Tyndale. He was a scholar, and he had mastered seven languages. He felt called to translate the Bible into English, even though he knew that this was against, not even against the rules, against the law where he was. And so he started doing it, but he was eventually betrayed by somebody who was posing as one of his friends, and he was arrested for heresy, and he was thrown into prison. And prison during this time was not a place he wanted to be. It was horrific conditions. Now, while he was in there... Henry VIII was working on some sketchy things, and he needed a scholar to help him write up some stuff. And so he actually offered William Tyndale safe passage to England and leave prison if he would come work for him. And Tyndale said, I will if the king allows me to translate the Bible into English. And that was not granted him. So shortly after, he was led to his execution. He was strangled, and then he was burned at the stake. And his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, less than a year later, the king allowed an English translation of the Bible to be published. And little did he know that most of it came through the pen of William Tyndale. And while Tyndale was in prison, we actually have one of the letters that he wrote, presumably to the governor. And I want to end by reading Tyndale's words so we understand how amazing it is that not only God has communicated to us through his word, but that we have an English version of it. He says this, Mrs. Tyndale. I believe, most excellent sir, that you are not unacquainted with the decision reached concerning me. On which account I beseech your lordship, even by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to pass the winter here to urge upon the Lord Commissary, if he will design it, to send me from my goods in his keeping a warmer hat. For I suffer greatly from the cold in my head being troubled with a continual cough, which is aggravated in this prison vault, a warmer coat also. For that which I have is very thin. Also cloth for repairing my leggings. My overcoat is worn out and the shirts are also all worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine. If he would please send it. I have also with him leggings of heavier cloth for overwear. He likewise has warmer nightcaps. I also ask for leave to use a lamp in the evening. For it is tiresome to sit alone in this dark cell. But above all of these things, I beg and entreat your clemency earnestly to intercede with the Lord Commissary that he would de design to allow me the use of my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew lexicon, and that I might employ my time with that study. Thus, likewise, may you obtain what you most desire, saving that it further the salvation of your soul. But if before the end of winter a different decision be reached concerning me, I shall be patient and submit to the will of God, to the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord, whose spirit may ever direct your hearts. Amen. It's an amazing thing that we have this book. At prison, we use the ESV, which is one of many good translations. 75% of the ESV came directly from the pen of William Tyndale. So this is the true message signed in blood from the nation of the cross. It was signed with the blood of martyrs and it was signed ultimately with the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And you need to know this morning that Jesus Christ bled for you. See, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the good news is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God is holy, so sin is not insignificant. It needs to be paid for, but Jesus Christ has paid for it. And there's no reason that all of us this morning can't rejoice in the salvation that Christ has offered. Won't you pray with me?